Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session 451. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 451 you're listening to. My guest today is producer, mixer, and mastering engineer Justin Gray, based out of Toronto, Canada. Justin has worked on projects for Snoop Dogg, Brandy, Nikki Yore, Mother Mother, Upsall, and the Sheepdogs, among many others. We're going to get into his journey and uh, most certainly talk about a few key topics, including Atmos. Justin Gray, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about getting paid. Getting paid should be something very simple. You do the work, you submit the invoice, you get paid. That's common sense to me, but that's not always the case. There are two sides to the equation that can stymie the whole getting paid thing. The first part that can stymie the whole thing is you or us. If you don't have a system in place to effectively and immediately bill people, that can slow the process down. Your bills are coming at a regular interval. Doesn't matter what you owe on, you're going to get your bills or the invoices from the people you owe on time, from the utility company, from the landlord, from the mortgage company, you are going to get those invoices. They are sending them out like clockwork. So when you delay getting yourself paid, you potentially delay paying your bills. That has a a domino effect that can affect other things in your life, and it can really become a source of stress. That's what can happen. It's one thing leads to another leads to another, and then it's a cause and effect thing. Step one, get yourself a simple, straightforward, no bullshit invoice system. I use this thing called simpleinvoices.io. I'll put a link in the show notes. It's really straight ahead. You know, you create the client, you can create line items for them to pay. They can pay you by PayPal, they can pay you by Stripe, or they can pay you by check. You can set it up in a number of ways, but it's very simple. And it allows you to see when you sent something, if it was opened and it allows you to send reminders, it's dead simple. It should be. And when you complete work, just either have an invoice ready to go or prep an invoice immediately and fire it out the door. It's not like you got to run down the, to the post office and get a stamp. You, you email it to somebody, right? We're in the 21st century. Boom, it's out there. And then boom, they can pay you, right? Now, getting paid through a system like that can be challenging if you're dealing with some higher level artists, like if you're dealing with any uh, universal music group artist, or maybe there's an independent record label that uses a portal system. Some of these companies have these online portals where you have to register and put in all your banking information and who you are so that they have you in their system. So it's like a legit portal to see what's coming in for them. And it, and it makes sense. However, they are a pain in the ass, huge pain in the ass. And 
sometimes they can be confusing and it can slow down the whole process. So the more you are on it in the front end, the easier on the back end it's going to be. So if you're dealing with indie clients, hell, actually, even if you aren't dealing with indie clients, even if you're dealing with a client that's on Universal Music Group, for example, if you go to your invoice program and you create your invoice and you download it as a PDF, then you can upload it to some of these online portal systems that are required by some companies and you can get paid a lot faster. The more organized you are with banking information, I, I did a thing through a portal the other day where they wanted to see a bank note or a bank letter. And fortunately, I do banking with a company that has the bank letter ready to go just to say, this is who this person is. It, we are verifying they have accounts here, et cetera, et cetera. You may not run into that all the time. In fact, that's the first time I ran into that. Having all of your ducks in a row ready to go at all times, then you're set. But if you forget about where you have this stuff, where you don't have it in a strategic place to where you can get to it quickly, uh, you're going to find yourself in a situation where you're slow to bill. That means it's slow to get paid, right? And it slows everything down. The other end of this equation, I've hammered you on that enough. Just make sure you're prepared, have your shit together, right? The backside of the equation is if people are slow to pay you, now, that's a whole nother story, and that's pretty much out of your control. I sent an invoice to someone over 30 days ago. Didn't see any payment, didn't see any reply to the email, and so I rattled his cage a little bit and said, hey, do you need anything else from me? And that's when he was like, oh, yeah, let me refer you to this other person. And then that person proceeded to tell me, oh, by the way, yeah, you've got to sign up through this portal. And then those portals generally have a 30-day waiting period to get paid. So then that just delays things that much more. So let's start with this. If you're going to email somebody an invoice, make sure you get some kind of uh, acknowledgement that A, they received it, and B, when is payment expected? Remember what Andrew Shep says, don't be a dick. Be cool, send it out, just we're looking for factual information. And this goes back to the whole professionalism discussion I had in the past with, with a guest where we were talking about what is professional? Well, it's following up with the details. It's getting the facts, getting in an email, uh, a, a trail, if you will. What I was dealing with was on a bigger level, on the indie level. Now, strangely enough, my indie clients are really good about paying me. I rarely have to wait to get paid by my indie clients. It's not a, a super big stress for me. I've rarely been screwed by an indie client. I've probably had one or two in almost 30 years that really gave me uh, a, a few headaches. Same thing applies. It's simple. It's send the invoice out. Hey, I sent you an invoice. Like, for example, if you send an invoice through a system that emails them, follow up with your own email because you don't know if that system's email got flagged as spam. So you want to follow up with an email. Hey, George, Bob, Sally, sent you an invoice. Can you confirm receipt? Thank you very much. That's it. Yeah. And once they do that, if you give them uh, the ability to pay you online, you'll probably get paid pretty quick. And let's talk about that for a sec. Get yourself set up with a Stripe account. Get yourself set up with a PayPal account. Get yourself set up with a Venmo account. Make sure that you cover all the basic mainstream, popular, reliable uh, payment systems that everyday people use. And you'll most likely get paid pretty quick. And you might say, well, but there's a fee. And you know, it's like, you know, unless you're gonna have them send you a check, I mean, come on people, get out of the 20th century. Do you even know where your checkbook is? Come on, let's, that's like leaving somebody a voicemail, right? Just 
just text them. You're probably going to be dealing with some people younger than you, and they're a lot more on top of it than that. They don't write checks. Come on. They'll pay you through a system like Venmo, like PayPal, like Stripe. Just send them an invoice. It's a cost of doing business. And if you're worried about the fee, just charge a little extra. Just like whatever. If you're charging 50 bucks an hour, charge $55 an hour, and that'll cover your fee, I'm sure. So that is that. Always follow up with, hey, I sent you an email through my billing system. Please confirm that you got it kind of thing. You know, make sure you go in and mark those invoices paid if you haven't, because uh, if you don't log in your, uh, your, billing, your billing system for six months, you're going to look at that list of unpaid things because some of them get paid outside of the system and they don't register as paid. Sometimes you'll send somebody a PDF out of your billing system and when they pay it, they may pay you like through Venmo and you had sent them a PDF. Therefore, it's not going to register in your billing system. So you need to physically go in and mark that off. And you got to do it like weekly or monthly. Do something like that. Now, what do you do if it just takes a while to get paid? Well, in my opinion, you got to stay on it. You, you should put terms on your on your invoices like, you know, net 30 or net 15, meaning, you know, 15 days, 30 days. And you know what? If somebody is just really dragging their feet or even if they're not dragging their feet, just you can even start saying after 30 days or after two weeks, this is considered late and it will incur a small percentage fee on top of that. Right. So people don't like to be late. People don't like to pay fees. I am. Okay, now let's say somebody does send you a check. I'm actually sitting here staring at one right now. Don't sit on the check. Get that check in ASAP. You know, some banks, if you wait over six months, uh, they won't take it. I have a bank here in Lafayette that if I wait six months, they won't take the check. I don't know why. It's happened a few times because si I've sat on checks before. You know, because it's a pain in the ass. It's like, really, people? You're sending me a check? Okay, fine. You're going to send me a check. Get that check in ASAP. Just prioritize it. That's all there is to it. And you know, you don't have to go down to the bank. Remember, we are in the 21st century, so most people, in fact, I'm willing to bet all banks at this point, maybe there's a few outliers that will allow you to scan the check, endorse it, take a picture, boom put it in the account. Make sure you do that. And then put that like in a little envelope, you know, paid checks, uh, if you need to refer back to that. And then after, I don't know, maybe after the year's up, after taxes are, are done, shred them. Don't throw them in the garbage, people. You don't want checks that were made out to you getting getting turned into uh, fraudulent checks. So yeah, shred those checks. So back to the whole thing of somebody not paying you in a timely manner. You can add the fee. Many of these programs, like the one I mentioned, allow you to hit a, a remind, quote unquote, remind, uh, or rattle the cage, as I like to say. Don't hesitate to do that. Most of the people you're probably dealing with are, are the nicest people in the world and everybody's nice. I get it, you know, but business is business. And sorry, this is where I kind of like get a little more hardcore. It's like, hey, I did the work. I gave you the files send me the money. There should be no hesitation whatsoever. Also, you know, with first time clients uh, that I don't know, I will always ask for 50% of whatever it is I'm doing up front, because I'll be honest with you, I just don't trust some people. End of story. And I know that can be harsh, but you know what? People are really nice when they want something and then like getting the files from you. And then when push comes to shove, when it's time to pay, sometimes people can really just del use delay tactics to pay you. And it's like, it becomes a hassle and it starts to distract from your other clients who are great clients and it just starts to weigh on you. So be businesslike, be pro, but be assertive, advocate for yourself, make sure that people are not trying to mess around with 
you getting paid. Because like I said before, your bills aren't gonna wait, right? You have to pay the utility bill, especially now when here we are in the summertime and many places are like triple digits and you gotta you know, keep, keep your place cool and keep your gear cool. So that's it. So those are a few tips. I'm sure I could think of more, but let's just stick with that. Uh, remember what I said, set yourself up with a simple, effective system to get yourself paid. Stay on it. Don't waste time. Make sure you get on billing people as soon as the job is complete. And if you feel like you, you don't trust somebody or you just don't know them, 50% up front, you know, all these things. So make sure you do all that. And I hope you all stay getting paid and stay in the game. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Let's get to it. Justin Gray here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Justin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Matt. Great to see you. We had a, a great chat. I think it was after I saw the first half of one of the best videos out there that talks about Atmos and, and the mastering side of Atmos. And admittedly, I've only made it through like the first half watched the first half, loved it. I, and I think we talked on Zoom. You were in a park with your family. We talked for like an hour, I think. And there I am interrupting you and your family with a bunch of questions. Anyways, great to have you on. I have a lot of questions, but I think it's always best to just start at the beginning. Tell me about where you grew up. I grew up where I am now here in Toronto in Canada. Brothers or sisters? Yeah, I have a younger brother. His name's Derek. Both of us are musicians. So Derek is a professional drummer, and we'll probably get into this in some of your next questions, but professional bassist is sort of how I got into doing music. So yeah, small family, but a musical one. Tell me about your parents. Were they musical? It's a great question. As performers, absolutely not. And I've thought about it a lot because, you know, both my brother and I got really into it. And especially now, as, a, as you mentioned, I was in the park with my family. I've got two little kids, and my dad and my mom both just love music. My dad especially, just absolutely obsessed as a listener. I mean, even now into his 70s, he's out at a concert every night that he possibly can be. What I recognize from a musical sort of transferring standpoint is our living room as kids the television was like tucked away in a corner and was never fancy, but we always had an audiophile audio system. My dad was super into vinyl, and, and that was just normal to me. It was normal to have a wall of vinyl, a wall of CDs, go to HMV. That was a special trip. It's like, let's go to HMV, which then transferred into me directly. And as a family, I remember listening to records with my dad more than watching movies or anything along those lines. And that was just normal. It was just normal that like there's a small fireplace. It's a small house. It wasn't a really fancy living room, but really nice, decent pair of audiophile speakers. And so I think from that standpoint, I've recognized now my obsession with sound on the engineering side. I'm like, oh, that's probably where it all began. Do you think it's in the DNA or do you think it, it just it's a product of socialization between you and your father? I think that it's the socialization. I mean, obviously we could... <laughs> We could bring a third party into the call who's probably got more scientific answers to it. But I believe that all human beings are musical in their own way. And it's just a matter of who gets the opportunity and was fortunate enough to have that fostered. And so as a kid, like going to concerts, seeing things, I can remember 
when I was really young, seeing concerts with like Bela Fleck and the Flecktones and Victor Wooten and getting obsessed with that even before being a bass player or going to see Ravi Shankar at a big hall in Toronto. Like those are sort of memories that are in there. So I think when you are have a loving family environment and you see a parent really passionate about something, you sort of naturally as a kid sort of soak that up. And then once my brother and I, you know, I'm older than Derek. So once I started wanting to become a performer and wanting to learn the bass, my dad was all in and my mom as well, but like they were just both all in in terms of support, finding a teacher, making sure we could get to lessons, driving me to band practice with my friends. Like that support system is, is everything. It's invaluable. Yeah. It truly is. Do you think, because you said your, your parents weren't musically inclined to play instruments per se, but do you think, like, for example, maybe your dad's enthusiasm for your musical leanings caused him to say, well, you know, I didn't do it, but I love it and I, lo- I love music. So I'm going to, I'm going to jump in wholeheartedly and support this kind of venture. When I think about it that way, my dad and my mom as well. Like both my parents were just always down to support something that my brother or I were willing to go all in on. So whether it was sports or doing like as kids, we were in cubs and camping and all that kind of stuff, like whatever we were doing. But I think when they saw my really deep obsession with music happen very fast, once I got into playing, they were like, okay, whatever you put in, we're willing to support. And that again, as you said, is just invaluable. First instrument for you, was that bass? Yep. Yeah, I started basically grade seven. There was a school assignment in music class. Actually, sorry, I was already playing clarinet in in band class. Mm. So first instrument of choice, not that I don't like the clarinet, but the clarinet was like, we all pick one around grade four in Canada. That's when you get band class. And I was playing clarinet. I, I remember going to a band camp, like I was into getting better at it, but it wasn't an instrument that was self-motivating me to get better at it. And then my friends wanted to start a Rage Against the Machine cover band, and I did too. And two of them played guitar. One of them was an excellent drummer. Someone else wanted to do vocals, so there I was with bass. And <laughs> I'm like this, this standard bass player story of like, hey, my dad's got a bass. Why don't you play this? I'm like, well, sure. What's bass? <laughs> like, all I want to do is is be a part of this. So sure, show me what that is. Okay, it's that one. Great. I'll find a teacher and just went for it. <laughs> That's great. The Rage Against the Machine cover van. Wow. Did any part of that time spent with your dad, you know, reading, I'm sure you spent some time looking at credits. Did it ever occur to you that audio and recording was something that you were interested in? Did you ask questions about that early on? No, not at that age. When I figured out that I liked it was right when I went to university and I went to university in a sort of high-level jazz program here in Canada. I actually teach at that university now, more on the engineering side, but I entered that university as a bassist, fully focused to be a professional performer. And I have been a professional performer for the last sort of 20, 25 years. Less so in the last seven years to a decade has sort of been transitioning much more into the full-time studio side only, but uh, it's still there. But at that time, I was bass only, like just, I want to play, I want to perform. But I was always going around with an inbox and a laptop recording everything I could, wanting to have people over to overdub things, to make little jazz demos so we could get gigs. And 
slowly but surely, like that never stopped. Essentially, that aspect of on the side being fascinated to have a early laptop and a the original Mbox and and a what probably like a Rode NT2 was like the nicest one I got after a '57. Being like, okay, come over. I laid down a bunch of bass lines. Like you can come over, play drums in my bedroom, and it's all gonna work. And I think I remember a bunch of friends like at that time. As you know well, recording outside of a studio still wasn't really a thing. It wasn't a, it wasn't something that was being considered a professional activity. It was like, okay, interesting. That, that's interesting that you can do that as this archival weird thing that you're doing. And I think some friends are probably like, man, why aren't you just practicing bass? Like, why, why are we doing this? <laughs> do we really need to record ourselves right now? I'm like, no, just come over. It'll be fun. So. I think that that aspect of it, the sound capture and being sort of obsessed with with that aspect of the production process became very clear to me as soon as I had access to do it. Yeah, and it's interesting because, and I can identify with you on, you just wanted to play bass. All I wanted to do was play drums. I just wanted to play drums, be in a band, be a rock star. That took over my brain. But the minute you can open up this side of your brain that pertains to recording an audio... And there's almost like a shift. There's a split in the mind about, oh, I could do this or that. And I don't know how it was for you, but for me, the drumming thing immediately started to become lower in priority. What was it for you? Yeah, you know, mine has been a very long relationship. From a professional side, I might have understated it. I mean, even up till sort of pre-COVID, I was playing 200 concerts a year. Oh, so it remained a solid thing in your life. Yeah, yeah, full like full on. And Toronto has a has an unbelievable music community as do many cities, but Canada-wise, we've got musicians from around the world, such high level and and a lot of live music going on. Now, that includes everything from jazz clubs to touring, never like long touring. I wasn't a like a 4-month, 5-month touring artist. More just like in Canada, we have 2-week tours or 3-week tours things along those lines. Weddings, playing in Motown bands, some summers. This is now like six years ago or so, but I definitely had a couple summers where I hit a good 60, 70 of those a year. I mean, it was it was there. And the challenge for me was navigating those two worlds because at the same time, I have had a studio and had access to a studio that is, like all of us, has been expanding and expanding for about 12 years. First it was in my basement, then I built the building in my backyard that I'm that I'm sitting in now and that I work in. And again, th- there was this sort of split head, as you were saying, these two sides of the brain, one that's like, okay, well, I'm trained as a performer. I've got a great community. I love doing it. Sometimes I'd even question myself. I was like, what is it that keeps pulling me to just invest in this other side? Like, because you do, you split your energy as well, right? And there can be sacrifices made on both sides by trying to juggle them. And I would say about five years ago is when I really started to say, you know what, I'm going to start to pass on some gigs that I was doing to younger players in the community and, and start that transition process. Because also, as you know, the music community, these these are friends, these are family. It's not just band members. These are people that you love to see on a Saturday. You love to see them a couple times a week or go on tour and so it's not so easy to just stop doing something because it's a part of your fabric and a part of your your community. So it took quite some time, I think, for me to come to terms with where I am now, where I'm in I'm in the studio 95% of the time. And then 
every once in a while a concert or something like that where it's like, okay, I just have, I got to do this. I can't, I can't miss out on the the opportunity. It's usually more social than it is musical. It's like, oh, this, this is a, a beautiful group of people that I just love to see. And if picking up a bass is going to get me there, I'm in. And who knows, that might transition again. I think it's just, I sort of felt, especially sort of post-COVID, that cleared the concert schedule entirely. Mm-hmm. And there was this this clarity that it provided to me. And as we're going to talk about, of course, with Immersive Audio, I've been into it for six years. And so really six years ago is when I think I told myself, I was like, no, this is who I feel like I am and what I want to be. And it's been a little bit of a a process of just sort of transitioning my role in the community. Because now I'm I'm mixing and mastering for people who I was on tour with or who I produced. And it's this same community, right? Our world is all about relationships. And so I sort of have worked pretty hard to try and make that a, a, a smooth transition, not only for my community, but for myself as well. But I'm feeling very settled with where things are at at the moment, which I'm grateful for. Do you feel that, I mean, COVID aside, do you think that part of your transition into having studio life dominate a little more now, is it a direct result of having kids and being more family-centric and staying closer to home? 100%. I mean, everything in our life is intertwined. I think that's such a great question. I appreciate the question because I feel like whatever decisions we make for our lives, then every decision comes with consequences. And consequences, I don't think that word necessarily means bad. It's just a reaction to an action. And so by having kids, by having a family, by wanting to put my three-year-old daughter to sleep at night between seven and nine or, or see my partner and not necessarily be out from seven till two in the morning every day. Also, as we get older, like, you know, our energy changes and our ability to sustain certain lifestyles changes. So I think from that perspective, that's definitely played a role in inspiring the kind of lifestyle, I guess. And then I feel grateful to have been able to make decisions to fit certain things in and try to design something that works for, you know, just also for the creativity, right? You just sort of have to follow like, what is making me feel musical? What is allowing me to express myself? And I guess that's the other part of it too, is I don't feel that different when I'm sitting in a chair than I do on stage in a weird way. Like it's all just music. It's just musical expression. I think COVID showed me that I felt just as connected as an engineer as I did as a performer. And I I have friends who are like, I don't get that at all. I cannot. You're sitting in your own, in the middle of the night, in your studio, not talking to anyone. You're not, I was like, I know, I, I understand how it feels weird, but like the musical output, the creative output feels very similar to me, which is helpful. Mm-hmm. When did you start to, I mean, you didn't go from playing bass to then, oh, I'm going to build a studio in my backyard. There's obviously, there's some in between there. So totally. What, what was the in between? Um, the earliest one was related to, that I can recall, minus like running around with an inbox and, you know, mixing my own sort of stuff, which I guess is part of the journey. Every time that I had the opportunity to be in the studio as a bassist, I'm like, great, let me get my takes done so I can get on the other side of the glass. And in Toronto, we've got some fantastic studios, but specifically one engineer here, his name is Jeremy Darby. He owns the Canterbury Music Company. And I just learned so much. I recorded there a lot. And then what started to happen is I think my interest in both sides of it led me to becoming a producer on a lot of projects. So I'd be a player producer role. So I could help with the editing because I got good at editing fast. And as we both know, editing is 
a very musical process when you want it to be, especially when you're helping somebody craft improvised music like jazz music, R&B music, where it's not so much about fixing problems, rather it's about composition. So I would sort of find myself in a producer role, co-producer usually. It's like producing with an artist who knows what they want, but they just need someone who knows the music well, but can also help technically. And that naturally led to sitting through full mix. You know, I'd just be in every mix session ever. The moment where I started creating my own space was to facilitate production so that someone who wanted me to be a part of the post-production process could allow that. They could come over. I was in my basement. I treated it. As we know, it's like one thing at a time. Start with a 500 series this or, you know, get a better mic. It's one piece at a time. I feel like if I was to trace the the growth of gear to now being surrounded by this many speakers, it's it's pretty linear. There was never just one big moment. It was always one gig leads to this. I invest in this. It's it's always been a self-employed situation. There's never been another party involved. But there was a project, a band called Monsoon, which is a Indo-jazz band, which means like, I've studied a lot of Indian classical music along with a couple of colleagues here. Like I actually lived in India for a while studying Indian music. And we had a band that crossed that over. And we finished our studio sessions and the band killed it. Everyone sounded great. And we just knew that we weren't done. We wanted to make something that involved a bunch of overdubs and a bit more production-oriented moves, even though it was pretty much a jazz project and and the aesthetic of it was very much already contained in those studio sessions. So we went up to a cottage, did the classic sort of two weeks at a cottage. And I I did make an investment at that time where I got a larger Apollo and borrowed as many mics as I could and got every stand and cable that I possibly could set up in a bedroom and recorded all of this other stuff and just took the album into a totally different world than it initially was. And I've never gone back from that moment. I was like, this is how I want to be involved in music. Now, I didn't mix that project. That was a project where once I came back, Jeremy Darby, who I was mentioning earlier, he mixed it. But like, I was, we were right there together. And it was even Jeremy who's like, you know, at a certain point, just pick up the mouse and do it. I mean, you know what you're looking for. You know, <laughs> you're just telling me to do it. But like, you know, if you just sat here and you put in the time and you weren't w- worried about paying by the hour, you could take this thing where you need to take it. The thing that's in your way is a good monitoring environment. And so I think that from that moment onwards has was working towards creating a space that could do that. And there's a good five years, I don't know, probably about 30 records that I sort of produced and mixed. And fascinatingly, somewhere along the way, I found mastering. And it was definitely with one of my own projects. Like I, I just did it. I think that the mastering engineer who I loved working with wasn't available. I had a really good setup, like proper speakers. The room was was in good shape. And I did it. And again, it was one of those moments where something just clicked in my brain. I was like, ah, I love, I love thinking about the audio this way because it's totally different. Yeah. It's a totally different mindset. And so, yeah, I mean, I guess I just can't help myself. I, if it's musical, I just love doing it. So I've sort of just enjoyed being a part of just about every part of the production process. And again, a pretty classic sort of linear thing from starting it as a bassist into editing and producing, into mixing, into mastering. And, and then at this point, it's like whatever the project needs, which I know is you know similar to you and similar to your community. You, you have a community of really flexible, talented people around you, yourself included. So anyways, a bit of a long-winded answer to your question, but hopefully that gives a little context. It does. And tell me about 
when immersive audio started to become something of, of importance to you? Yeah, I would say about 10 years ago, I did expand my setup, which was Adam A2Xs. I remember them. They were like the nice Adams, but still the, like the single driver versions. And I love film music. I love film. I think there's a part of me that always wanted to, I've composed for film a couple of times as well, but never really like never taken that across the goal line, but I've just never put any time into developing that. And that's a whole thing as we know, but I want, I set up five, one for myself about 10 years ago and I don't know why I did. And quite frankly, when we get to the Atmos conversation, it's similar. It's like there was no career plan. <laughs> it was, it was purely based on, I wanted to listen to a bunch of immersive audio on SACD and Blu-ray. Mm -hmm. I have a really close friend of mine named Sean Rompre. We've played music together for over 20 years. He was also obsessed with listening to 5.1 and things like that. And so once I set myself up with the 5.1 system, I started my collection. I have a great collection of Blu-ray and, and SACD. At that time, it was, it was more SACDs. And I just like, I have a whole bunch of classical music, weird music, anything that was sort of released in surround I would just listen to, and I had it all through, it was all like way overkill. It was all through like the dangerous 5-1 surround thing. Like I should have been doing some serious work at that time, but it wasn't a thing. Now I did reach out to a bunch of film composers who are friends of mine in Toronto, and I did a bunch of 5-1 pre-mix work, like pre-soundstage work for a couple of years. A couple composers was like, hey, the soundstage said that they would definitely accept 5-1 stems. Why don't we mix this in surround for this sort of documentary kind of thing? Nothing feature, of course. And then you can deliver them stereo and 5-1 stems. I'm like, yeah, totally. I always wanted to create music in surround, and I always wanted to put my own music in surround. But until the advent of Atmos, essentially, for me, there was no practical thing. Because at that time, like eight years ago, SACD is like, unless you're in a very specific group of people who we know who those people are. I mean, you know, sure, if you're, if you're Leslie Ann Jones, if you're George Massenberg, if you're Eric Schilling, if you've got, if you're making some of those Sony classical records, David Ziegler over in Europe, like if you're one of those people, you have been a part of that, that 5171 discrete audio delivery. Martin Lindbergh, of course. Yeah. But if you're just in Canada on your own and you don't have, access to either Sony, Universal, or like basically classical artists who are, want to do their records that way. We all know it was hard enough to get people to print CDs eight years ago, let alone like, you know what you should do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The SACD thing is, I've heard very few people really talk about it. Oh, there's so much good music. So much good music. I mean, so... So I was already enamored with immersive, like as a listener, as an audiophile, essentially. It's like as an audiophile who was convincing myself that there was some engineering endgame, which at the moment there wasn't. And then at an AES conference, I heard about Atmos from Avid said it, Dolby said it, and I already knew about it from the film side. I actually knew quite a bit about object-based technology, the fact that film studio, you know, I don't know where I got it, but just having nerdy friends and opening your ears, you can learn a lot. And the minute that I heard it from a couple of people all at once, I did a serious deep dive and read all of the film side of stuff. I also took some initial consultation lessons with a couple film mixers who were like, why are you interested in this? And this is six years ago. I just went for it. 
I saw an opportunity to fill out my Lipinskis, which are my mastering speakers. I saw an opportunity to get five more, which made seven, and some ceiling speakers that I could that I could mount properly in the studio. And I just started to build it. I couldn't even play anything back. There was no renderer. When I had to call Carrie Thomas, who anyone who's listening to this podcast probably either they know or Carrie Thomas used to be our main contact at Dolby, who was part of the technical development of this whole ship. I pretended that I was going to make a soundstage in Toronto so I could get somebody on the phone. I was probably just calling the wrong number now that I know that Dolby is super responsive. And I, then I got a call back. <laughs> and the first time I picked up the phone with Carrie, I was like, Carrie, my name's Justin. I'm definitely not building a soundstage. <laughs> I just want to make music in Atmos. I heard something about it somewhere, and I think you're going to do it, and I believe in it. I want to do it. What do I do? Here I am. I have all the gear, but like, does it work? Is there any technology? And even at that point, he's like, okay, you're really early here. Like <laughs> they hadn't even finished Capital yet. They were still in that phase. And here I am asking about, like, I want to make a track now. And they're like, whoa, very cool that you're into it. So Carrie was amazing. He would call once a month or text. And I, I did some in initial sort of I don't know. I would just tell him my experience as well, and we would sort of share that stuff. And and then as soon, like as soon as Genowick and all of them got into Capital and all that stuff came out, I was working with the technology at the same time, going through the early days, which was, I mean, not that it's super easy now, but it's a lot easier. Oh, it's it, it was so, mess. Hell, even after a year of me being in it, it's gotten so much easier. Yeah, no, it was messy. It was totally messy. I mean, not only was it messy, the other issue on my side was. I was just working on stems that I had access to. So mainly my own music. And I have I have lots of that as a composer and a producer. And then other projects where I'd, I'd call a friend and say, hey, do you mind if I open this up and just work on it? We won't release it, but I'll show you what I did if you come over for a coffee sometime. And they're like, yeah, sure, no problem. I mean, they're like, okay, why are you, what? <laughs> you know, that's six years ago. Then like I was there, already had a whole bunch of projects mixed in Atmos sort of quote unquote done, but there was nowhere to deliver if you weren't a label. Mm -hmm. When Tidal started, I called and was like, hey, can I get in there? And they're like, not really. Basically, this is like a label only delivery platform. Are the artists on UMG? Are they on Sony? I'm like, nope, these are just independent things. Like, uh, you're going to have to wait that one out. So, which I was fine with. I mean, I was, it was not a problem. I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll just sort of ride this 20 mixes on Tidal wave for a while and listen to The weekend and listen to Rocket Man and Wu-Tang a whole bunch and be like, okay, I, I can't wait to share the ones that I've done, but there's no way, there's nothing. There's nothing for an independent at that moment. Then as soon as the Apple wave started to come along, a whole bunch of labels sort of got in touch with me and we started that work, but also the ecosystem as it needs to continue to do, started to support independent releases. So, you know, it started for me not with a, plan of, I mean, it should have been more of a plan. I've definitely reflected on the fact that it was an inappropriate investment to make based on my lack of plan. <laughs> it was a crazy thing to do. That was a big leap of faith considering how early you were. Yeah. I should probably talk to somebody about it. <laughs> 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 but at the same time, I, I knew, I knew that it was a thing because as listeners, it's meaningful, right? It, it is something. It is something beautiful. And I've already been moved by immersive audio at that point for a long time. And I was like, I just, 
I can see the logic of an adaptive format being the way in. And the fact that Dolby and Avid, and then when Tidal did it, I was like, yeah, we're just waiting for Apple or Spotify. I didn't know if it was one or the other, but I was like, one of these two will do it first. And the day that happens, this can work. A lot of people thought Tidal would do it, but the fact that it was part of their high paid tier and they just didn't have nearly the machine that Apple does in terms of creating an ecosystem and a marketing plan. I was pretty excited. The day Tidal got on, I was as excited as the day Apple started. I was like, they did it. I went into my partner. I'm like, it's happening. Look, this thing is real. It's on a phone. <laughs> and, uh, and then nothing again, like crickets for a year to a degree. But I, I believe in it. I believe in it because it moves me. I think it's a powerful musical experience. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. Let me sidetrack and, and derail this for a minute because I'm curious about this and I'd, I'd like some clarity from a Canadian citizen who knows. I'm under the impression that the Canadian government funnels money into music projects to some degree. I don't know at what level and what's involved. Is that true or not? Absolutely it is. So we have, in fact... I thought it might come up later in the conversation, but I just finished tracking a project that I'm, I'm excited to share with you, but that is related to a Canadian grant. So in Canada, we have granting organizations at the municipal, provincial, and national level. So in Toronto, we have, it's not the only ones, but the Toronto Arts Council, Toronto Arts Foundation. There's the Ontario Arts Council, but there are also other arts councils for other cities and other provinces. We have provinces instead of states. And then there's the Canada Council for the Arts, or there's the like Trillium Foundations. And so the Canadian government has studied and figured out that investing in the arts is economically sound because they've seen, I think, when they've showed reports, because I've attended lots of these meetings, if you put a dollar into the arts, the economy gets two back. When you think of all the people who are attending the venues, parking, buying dinner, 
just the whole ecosystem around employment from venues and the whole sound people, techs, musicians, the whole thing. It's So I think that there is actually financial logic in their system. It is also, I think, just a beautiful philosophy that exists in and has existed for some time in Canada. It's obviously not unique to Canada. There's a lot of European countries that also have granting organizations. And what it is, let's, let's give an example, the Canada Council for the Arts. Anybody who's a professional, and there are certain criteria to define professional, can apply for a project. And there are projects not just in music, in dance, in story writing or writing books, so literature, visual art, lots of impetus around the idea of like collaborative arts, bringing multiple things together. And so as an artist, I can apply for funding to fund a project. Now I've got to put a whole thing together and show letters of support from people. I've got to give a whole plan. I do need really good demos. I mean, you almost essentially need an album to be able to apply to do an album because at the end of the day, it is a sound jury who's going to listen to something. Once they've read your plan and they agree that you can be trusted to see that through, they're going to judge the music. And so they hire really diverse panelists to be on juries who get together for multiple days. It's an ecosystem. Now, the thing about Canada is we don't have the population to support an artistic career in similar ways to, let's say, United States or Europe, just because, let's say I'm in Toronto, I want to go on tour. The next city with even close to this many people, and that's not this many people, is like five hour drive. And then after that, you might have to go another eight hours. If I go the other direction, I can cross like half the country before I get to a population where I could justify putting on a concert. And so because of that, I mean, we have, I think 40 million people in Canada and a massive amount of space. Now, not all of our space is as habitable as, as the States because it gets really cold up North and things like that. But our music scene would not be thriving without some of that funding. And what it sort of acts like is like a label without ownership, which is <laughs> actually pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. Now, it also, however, it does, however, lack something on the label side. It lacks the system to support the artists after completion. And I'm not saying that as a criticism. They never said that they would, but a, a label doesn't just take financial ownership over material. They also, they're capable of taking things and making sure that they're charted and advertising and funding tours and continuing the process. Where in Canada, it's like, I finished my record. Okay, congratulations, your art is complete. That's as far as the art grants go. You can apply for other funding to try and do promotional campaigns, et cetera, et cetera, but it's not quite the same. I've seen both sides of the coin, like having a label or having a, even if it's not a label, a community of people who are dedicated to seeing a project through to this monetization level success-wise is very powerful and it's very hard to do. Finishing an album is not easy, not saying it is, but having an album reach the world is very hard. And that's where, whether it's a label or it's a group of people who are dedicated to doing it, publicists and, and the like, managers, etc. That's something that the granting system does not have and I think has been a part of one reason why some of really unbelievable records in Canada, we have some seriously amazing records that haven't quite reached the international market quite the same as equally powerful records from the United States or Europe. But yeah, from your question, there there is a granting organization. Does that give more oh, yeah. than enough? That's great. Yeah, because it's something 
that I never, I never understood fully, like, you know, how does that work? But as you say, there's from the municipalities and provincial and national aspect, it can come from different spots and I'm sure it, at different dollar levels, but would it actually ever fund a studio? Could you ever get money out of the Canadian government to buy your gear? No. Okay. Now, in COVID, and you know, at that point, you're talking about business, like you're going to a bank or you're going to an organization asking for like a business grant. Yeah. It's not the arts. There have been, I have heard of the occasional, especially sort of post-COVID, occasional sort of like small business startup things, but those are not a part of grant funding. So grants, the purpose is they want to pay as many Canadians as possible, of course. Mm-hmm. Um so you actually have to have a Canadian contingent. There are there are all sorts of stipulations because it's Canadian taxpayer money. So they want to see it going back into the Canadian economy. There's some math and somebody's thought about what it means to set aside this amount of money for the arts. It's not to say that artists from around the world aren't a part of grants, but you have to be a Canadian citizen to apply. There's also like mandates and for good reason about diversity of of participants. You know, they want to make sure that this is getting spread evenly and it it doesn't become sort of a gatekeeped practice. Mm -hmm. And they're very good at it. They're very adamant about constantly looking at their systems. No system is perfect. No system is perfect. But I admire the energy that they put into trying to see it through. What's cool about it is it's all about art. So you can pay for a studio to record your art. You can pay the musicians to record very rarely can you pay yourself as an like it's getting a grant is like not really about making profit as an individual it's about facilitating the creation of the art got it and there are a few exceptions to that rule again especially during covid there was a couple things where it was like okay let's just let's keep this artistic community alive i think that regardless of anyone in canada's relationship with the granting system because like i said no system is perfect no system serves everybody perfectly but they did their best. They really did. And they helped a lot of people to keep the doors open, the lights on. And now I think the community is is coming out the other end, trying to thrive as much as possible. And there was a lot of good music created during that time that was related to those funding structures. Keeping on a little bit on the, on the business front here, you spent a number of years as a bass player. You've toured and you've played a lot of shows. With that as a point of reference, being a player and the business of playing and making a living, how does that compare to the world of audio for you? Do you find it easier to make a living as a player or do you find it easier to make a living as an audio professional? That's a great question. It's so circumstantial. When you build your performance career over the course of 15, 20 years, obviously you continue to grow with a community that keeps getting better and better gigs. And that takes time. So I feel as though it's important to see the process of like developing up to sustainable. Like in my early days of playing bass, I also worked other jobs. I worked some construction, which came in handy when I built a studio. But at the point of the height of of maintaining myself as a professional performer, it was working here in Toronto. It required playing five nights a week, which is a lot. There's a lot of travel. There's a lot of rehearsal outside of that. Oh, yeah. That's like, it's it's full on and your energy is contained within those hours. Even if you're only playing three hours a night on stage, every concert is like 12 hours of time. I've also been building myself as an audio professional for a long time. 
up and to the point that I could sort of do the handoff a little bit to say, you know what, giving up some of these playing opportunities, which I'm, I'm grateful for because they're helping to sustain my career, my family, making that leap is not easy. But I had built up a lot of momentum into that decision. And, you know, peak for me, just peak for me, not for anybody, but as a basis to like start a audio career, much easier as a basis. But if you, if you take the two, what I do find about being an audio professional at this stage where I have a space that's very ergonomic and set up to do what I want well, the difference is I just feel as the energy it takes to be a live musician is more. Just because you're moving, you're traveling, you're driving, you're flying, you're waking up early and going to sleep late. And I mean really late and really early if you're on tour. I find that I am able to conserve energy a bit better as a self-employed engineer. So it's still the same hours. I feel like I'm still putting in the same hours and getting to similar financial outcomes. Mm -hmm. But I do feel as though now I can have that energy that I need for my family. I'd like to do better in that regard. I'm sure we all would as working parents. But when I'm in here, it's quiet. I have control over my domain. When you're out at a gig, you don't have control. You sit down to have your laptop and someone's like, you got to move. You got to do this. You got to do this. Oh my gosh, we got to go get dinner. It's, you're just always on the move as a musician. So I think of it more in like the thing that is, that I have found to be working for me in the engineering side has been more about just like energy, overall sort of energy conservation. There's kind of a, maybe a feeling of being more settled where you can come in, things are the way they are. There's not a bunch of extra people and distraction. And it's, I find it very comforting to come in here every day and do what I do because it's like nothing's changed, nothing's moved. It's just as I left it. And when you're out playing on the road, there's so many moving parts. It's, I think, mentally a lot more challenging, I would, I would argue. I think that sums up what I was trying to get at very well. Now, it also comes with the reward when you're on stage and you get that, you get that energy, like that is of course also different. No matter how banging a mix is or a master is, you're, you're not going to get that same, that same adrenaline moment that it is to be playing in a concert. And so everything comes with its advantages and, and disadvantages. Absolutely. Are you a competitive person? I am. So how does that manifest itself in the world of audio? I feel like I'm a pretty quiet competitive person, but I just cannot help myself to want to outdo myself at every moment. Like I, I just can't be settled in the sense of wanting to just do better. So I don't see myself as competitive so much with others. And I do think that being a professional musician helped in your early days. You come into college, you come into wanting to be a professional musician. If you're not competitive, you're in trouble, right? Like you've got to be. Now there's a healthy amount of competition. There's also a destructive amount that's sort of part of your early days as a musician. But, you know, you've got to believe in yourself. You've got to believe that, and be confident that what you're doing is meaningful and powerful to be able to <laughs> even take a shot at what is a very challenging career to start. And so I feel like I, I got a lot of the unhealthy competition with others out of my system as a bass player, mm -hmm. where if we were to look at that phase, there's a whole psychological journey that goes with it. I feel like coming into audio... Because that was getting dealt with, again, that externalized competition sort of got sorted out for me as a player to the point where I 
matured a little and settled down and started to realize this is a a marathon and and not a sprint and all of those good lessons. I think I'm just in competition with myself. I just constantly want to reach to to do better, to have something sound better, to be able to match the standards of the music that's coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I don't really listen to other things as an engineer. I, I, I'm actually sort of grateful for it to a degree to have like come into it a little more matured than like have all the baggage that I have as a bassist. Yeah. Um, if that makes sense. So I feel like I, you know, I don't sit here listening to other people's mixes and comparing them. I, that's not been something that I that I have in my practice. What I do love to do is I love to experience other people's music and then I internalize that feeling and mm-hmm. then put it as a part of my own bar where I'm like, okay, it's not that I'm trying to reach your mix. I'm just trying to reach that feeling that I've had. And it doesn't matter where I had that feeling. It's just like now it's a part of me and I know what I want and I'm after it. I'm going to share something with you. Is it Upsall? Is that the name of the artist? Yeah, yeah, Taylor. Oh, Taylor Upsall, yeah. My gosh. There's a single off that that you did in Atmos that I absolutely love. It's the one about trying to kill the healthy person within herself and let the bad girl out. The way that makes me feel, the way that hits me and... Let me be clear. I'm a rock person in my heart or a punk rock person. You know, I love everything from High on Fire to Fugazi to even Rob Zombie. When I heard that song, I was like, this is good pop music right here. This is excellent. It's there's mm. something a little devious about it, but just from a technical standpoint, it sonically just sounds fantastic on my system. Amazing. I well think it's is a good girl era. I think good that's girl the, era. That's, that's the name of the song. Yeah. Really great. Yeah. I commented on the Facebook Atmos group when you posted it. I was like, this is good. I really like this. Amazing. Amazing. I love that aspect of it, the community part. That's what I missed in the early days of Atmos. There was nothing. There was no one to talk to. I wanted more than anything to get down to LA and just like go to Capitol to be like, how are you dealing with this, 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 this? <laughs> and now when I talk to them, they're like, oh, we were also just freaking out trying to figure it out. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about this. As I said, I'm over a year into it now, and I have some stuff coming out in the near future here that I'm dying to tell people about, but I feel not exactly comfortable talking about it at this moment. But I feel even more strongly about it than when I first jumped in. And and I hate, I don't want to make this the topic of conversation that dominates this interview, but I, I'm still kind of shocked by the the naysayers. It really it confounds me that some of these people, some of my peers can be so close-minded and it's all doom and gloom. So I'm curious what your perspective is on that concept of people who are just like, oh no, that's never gonna last, kind of thing. So when someone says that's never going to last, now, if you want to talk about naysayers, let's go back four years ago when Tidal started. That was <laughs> that was naysayers. Because actually, quite frankly, some of the stuff that happened wasn't coming out all that great. And in fairness to everybody, the first stereo mixes didn't come out all that great either. And it wasn't even necessarily engineer's fault. There was a lot of translation issues. There was a lot of complications there. The way Apple started, they should have done a better run for six months and then come out to where they are, where they were six months later, because that first run, they had an issue with their algorithm that was not translating. 
And that did not help. It was so frustrating to finally get your mixes out and then be like, oh no, this is not what I made. I'm appreciative of Apple. I love everything you're doing, but like we all know that this is not the way it was supposed to sound. And there was no way to QC at that time. There was nothing. It was just like a blind, like just throw it into the world. So I think I've been through all those emotions so many times to come back to your first question. Now, I don't care. I just don't care. I'm not out to prove anything to anybody. I really don't care. I don't mean to say that in a like, I'm right there wrong way. What I mean to say it is, I'm not making the music for someone who doesn't want to listen to the music. I'm making the music for the artists that I'm working with, for the labels I'm working with, for the producers I'm working with, and for me. And I want it to leave my studio feeling like a piece of art that I made. And at that point, if I continue to be hired to do it and have artists and, and labels and all the like thank me for my work, I'm good. I literally don't care about the rest of the world's opinion on it. So there's a, maybe a little bit of apathy that I've accumulated through trying. I've argued every argument in the early days of Facebook and done it. And I, I, I'm happy to evangelize with anybody because like you, I believe in it. But at a certain point, I didn't start it because I wanted to have financial success. Now, like I said, that's actually like, <laughs> that's, a, that's something that I've addressed in my own world of being like, ooh, that was a really crazy thing to do. <laughs> Just for art's sake, like what a wild thing to do. And I think my partner and I will have those discussions should there be some new format in the future. It'll be like, you know, this time we should probably talk about it before yeah. <laughs> you, before like 14 speakers and new DAX and $5,000 of cables. No one wants to talk about the cables. Cables are not cheap. Show up at the door. But all that aside, I got into it to create art legitimately. And so I think that for me, it was a distraction to get stuck in the weeds trying to convince people who were never going to hire me anyways to convince them that it was good. All I can do is the best I can do every day, every mix, every master, whatever it is. And the ecosystem is growing. I mean, I don't need to tell somebody that the ecosystem is growing. How long will it last? I don't know. There are probably more important existential crises that we should be studying more than the longevity of Atmos. 100% agreed. So that's, that's sort of where I've come out with it at the moment. Separate topic from all of this, and I'm bringing this up because it's in my rant for this episode. Tell me about your challenges in getting paid from clients, whether it's major label clients or indie clients. Do you have a system in place to ensure that the money continues to flow so that there's no stress and struggle around that that distracts you from keeping your eye on the on the the audio ball so to speak? Yeah, because my journey into working with labels did basically start 3 years ago and through immersive audio. Everything prior to that is all independent like jazz music, R&B music, world music here in Toronto. That that's my community still is. I definitely was aware of the idea of not texting someone and having them email transfer you the next day. <laughs> I was aware of it. The first year, I failed. I did not recognize properly what it was going to take. I don't have someone to do my, I do my own books. I have actually tried to solve that a couple of times and I just haven't found the right system or team member to justify the, the cost of outsourcing that work at this point for a couple of reasons, and I'm happy to discuss them, but 
I do feel as though now I'm constantly in the music. I have systems to stop myself and say, I just delivered something. I have to make an invoice right now. It doesn't matter what's due in the morning. If I don't do this, I've already learned what happens if I let it sit for three weeks. Well, that's just three weeks on top of three months. And I respect that different people, especially larger corporations, have systems and they've got wonderful people working there. So what I've realized is just create a system. I use a, an invoice app. And the minute that I finish a mix, I type it in. If I don't have the right information for it, I send the email right then and there. And now I'm saying this as though I'm 100% on it. Last month, I was involved in a big project. I failed. And I spent the last two days catching up. And that being a month late means another month later. So it is hard. I don't blame anyone but myself. Like I feel like I've never worked with anyone that they didn't trust me and I don't trust them. So we have a trust. I, I know it's there. I just have to do better to set aside the time to do the admin while it's fresh. Like that, that would be my advice to someone. And it's my advice to myself. Like I need to write it on my desk. Be like, did you just email a master? <laughs> if you did, you finished the job, minus maybe revisions or whatever, just make the invoice and send it now. Because then it's in the air. If someone needs something, they're going to contact me. If I need to send a reminder, it's like it's documented. But I don't know. Like I said, I did reach out to try and find some help with that, like more of a manager kind of role, those types of things. And I just haven't found that that is necessarily a part of my ecosystem yet, because I will also say that I like being in touch with the people directly, the people that I work with. I don't want to be a third party to my own artistic machine. I don't mind talking about money. I don't mind talking about those things with people because it's all a part of the artistic process. And I do think that I would miss the ability to have someone text and say, hey, could you do this like today? Could you do this for tomorrow? Like I would miss that part of it. I know that from a business standpoint, someone listening to this from a business standpoint would be like, I'm going to call Justin right now and smarten him up on, <laughs> on like how real businesses work. I get it. I get it. But I don't know. The relationship part of it is still, I don't know. It's, it's one of the most beautiful things about the music industry is being in contact with talented people who are inspired about what they do. So I don't know, maybe ask the question in a year, maybe I'll have ironed out a better system and I'll have come to my senses, but that's my honest take on my current situation. Yeah. A lot of us in the professional audio world, it's easy for us to do the work. It's easy for us to make a mix, make a master, do, you know, do some tracking. But our follow-up sometimes on the admin, on the business, many of us lack discipline, many of us lack the follow-through and it leads to bigger problems. And it's it's kind of why I brought this up in my rant today uh, prior to this interview. I think it's very important. You talked about, you know, when you're a player, you're out there, you're moving, It's there's a lot more energy expended. What about now? Because if you're in the studio and we talk about, you know, how it's, we're a little more calm, we're resting, but we're also sitting on our ass. Do you do anything physically to make sure that you don't become a part of that chair? Yes and no. I mean, I'm not going to blame the studio alone. I'll take full responsibility for like, my son is six, my daughter's three. So I feel like the last six years, any extra energy of like me popping outside for some push-ups has, <laughs> has not been as present as I would like. And it's, it's on my mind. I mean, you know, I'm getting older as, as everybody is, and I know that my body will benefit from it. 
So in that regard, I'm not going to be starting a uh, health podcast anytime soon. In fact, I might subscribe <laughs> to a few. But I do, the ergonomics in my chair are amazing. Like, I feel like I have sorted out exactly how I want to sit, where I want to sit. I built a desk to the height that I need for my body. I do have two dogs, and so I walk them. I get out. Since my house is on the same property, I pop in, I see my kids, I get jumped on for 15 minutes. My family's always joking. They're like, oh, what? Are you printing mixes? I mean, that just like, and I'm like, yes, I legitimately am printing mixes. Like, I know it sounds like this thing that I come in the house. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's okay. I'm just printing something. But I just take that opportunity to to walk out. But also from an ear health standpoint, right? It's just, we have to create perspective when we're all, when we're all on our own. And you're in the same environment, so you just got to step outside. So I could, I'd like to do more, but I definitely have a routine that I feel like has been sustainable for the ears. Body-wise, I'd like, I mean, my daughter's going to be in kindergarten in the fall. Mm-hmm. I feel like I keep telling myself, I'm like, well, that that's going to create a situation where maybe a, that little extra hour, I'd like to get into back into a little bit of running or a rowing machine in the basement or something along those lines, just to just to keep it going. But for now... I do try to listen to my body, at least, in terms of the ergonomics that I need. Knock on wood, there hasn't been any issues in that department that have held me back. But of course, it's anyone who knows anything about health would say that it's more about preventative measures than reactive measures. So it's on my mind. It's a good question. Is there anything in your world that inspires you that you could share with my audience that might inspire them? Obviously, knowing we're all most of us are all audio professionals. So is there anything for you that you could share that you think others might also get some inspiration from that, that really kind of presses them forward in, in the business? I think that it's very healthy to be challenged. I enjoy being challenged. I enjoy when something is hard and trying to figure it out. I think it's important, whether it's with yourself or hopefully with somebody else, to define your intent and to, to be able to have some clarity on what it is that you want and why you're doing it. Because for me, when I establish what it is that I'm trying to achieve, then I find it easy to self-motivate myself towards a goal. I do think that as much as I love to improvise and move through life and, and be pretty reactive, I do set goals and I have those underlying principles that I'm trying to go for. And so, yeah, just thinking about your intent, thinking about your aesthetics, thinking about what it is that you like, why you like it, so that when you're sitting down and chasing it, there's a little bit of passion there. Like, I feel like when I'm working, I'm pretty passionate towards achieving something. And I find more and more that when I achieve it, I actually find myself saying, yeah, like, I'm happy with this, which is sometimes rarer, right? As a basis, we all know, you get to the end of a studio session, you're like, ah, oh, I'd take another crack at everything. Yeah. And I'm not saying that when a mix or a master is done, it's not about perfection, but I do think that it has been helpful for me to sort of set some internal goals surrounding artistic vision and things along those lines. I do also think that reminding ourselves that it is about music, and I have been putting critical and enjoyment music listening back into my life over the past number of years, and it has been very helpful. I can't do a lot of it because our ears get tired, my kids are running around, But just like I've got a great system to be able to listen to just about anything in the world on a whole bunch of different quality levels. And I do love just sitting down and listening to something and being moved by it. 
it sort of recharges that aesthetic tank or like that memory that you're searching for, that feeling. So yeah, in that regard, set some goals for yourself, know what they are, articulate them, whether you write it down or you say it to somebody and don't be shy to challenge yourself because as much as it can be super hard, I do think that the growth, like the journey is more than the destination almost always for so many people. And it, like, it is true. And if you're enjoying the journey, then it's all good. But I don't think journeys exist without destinations. Otherwise, we're just sort of wandering. Nothing wrong with wandering. I like a good wander as well. But <laughs> like when I set a destination and then I'm like, there's just clarity. There's a certain clarity to like, okay, where am I going and why am I doing this? I find once that's there, I can put myself in the mode and just sort of go. So I hope that helps somebody. Yeah. Is there any topics that you wanted to discuss that we haven't touched on? Yeah. And I think this conversation is probably one of the most expansive in terms of talking about my history as a, as a musician, as a performer, as a composer. So for the last number of years, I have been composing and creating music specifically that I've conceived to be presented immersively. And this last month, I actually was just in the studio for 27 days straight, recording a full record, 30 musicians, people from around the world, strings, brass, Indian instruments, Middle Eastern instruments, full rhythm sections, synths, guitar, drums, bass, specifically recorded for immersive. And what that means is I did it at the college where I teach. I block booked the studio because they don't use it so much in the summer. It's a beautiful room. It's a great space. I loaded in all my gear. We had access to some of the greatest microphones and, and pre's in the world. I think there were 17 chefs on hand and six DPAs, and we really went to town. And I've been conceiving this thing, again, as a mix engineer, as a mastering engineer in Atmos and Sony 360. Atmos-wise, I've done about 700 songs to date which is spending a lot of time with a lot of stems and a lot of parts trying to create feelings. And that has informed the way that I wrote the music, the way that I orchestrated the music. And so what we did was in the control room, we set up 914, discrete channel, no Atmos involved, no 360 involved, discrete channel 914 coming out of Pro Tools and tracked every single instrument with immersive intent. So various arrays, various microphone techniques, not always quite as literal as that. It's like if I want the brass to be in the rears and I know I want them there compositionally or orchestration-wise, let's put them behind the array and record it properly that way and then have their reflections reflected in proper mic technique with, you know, 11 sheps in a, in a cardioid array. The opportunity to create music that way myself and react to all of the various emotions that I've been trying to put into other people's music, it was a big artistic leap for me personally. And it was a lot. I mean, also just managing a project of that size is its own, <laughs> is its own thing. But on a creative level, it was very special. I'm looking forward to sharing the music, being able to bring artists into the room. You know, they're still in stereo, right? They've got cans on. But bringing them into the room when I'm asking them to do six or seven layers, having them sit down hear it for real in real time and then go track and be like, I get it now. I get what we're doing. And now all of a sudden they understand why we're changing the dynamic range or what it is. They can come in, they can listen to it in real time. We can change microphone techniques to benefit them being there rather than having to mix it after the fact. 
It was the best. It wow. was amazing. What an undertaking and what, what an opportunity. I look forward to hearing that very much. To be able to, in real time, as you say, just like create discrete channel feeds out of Pro Tools to the speakers and to play that back for musicians, I'm sure it makes it a lot easier than, you know, I know we're tracking in stereo, but when we do the Atmos thing, uh, trying to explain that can be pretty difficult. Wow, that's cool. What's the timeline of, of the, the completion of that project? I need till mid next year for sure. The intent of it is it was also all every single performance was videoed by like five cinema cameras. So like my intent is to release it in a movie theater. So that was my intent from the beginning. So every night we tore the studio apart, set up a new stage, new trying to create the never ending studio because everybody string quartet was recorded together. Brassers recorded together. Some extra violin and guitar stuff was recorded together around arrays, like very classical-like. But it was an overdub project. I wanted to have control as a mixer, as a producer. I want to have the control to move things exactly where I want them. And I've worked on tons of projects with lots of bleed. And unless they're sitting exactly where you want them, it creates more problems than solutions half the time. So you end up having to leave it there. So like this one, it's my own music. A lot of it is instrumental. It was powerful, too, to at a certain point, like, look, I'll make a stereo of it. I will be proud of that stereo, too. But at a certain point, I was like, other than phase, which is important and immersive, too, I just, I don't care. I don't care about, like, this is not about stereo presentation right now. This is about making it to be essentially 914. Later on, I will, of course, port it into Atmos, and I will mix it in Atmos for cinema. I'll take it to a soundstage that I work with in Toronto, and we'll do a proper DCP I'll make a Blu-ray of it, like a whole bunch of things will all get done. But it really is just a multi-channel record that will then go to Atmos. And I'll also do a Sony 360 version of it. It's all just going to take time. I still have to, right now, like I finished five days ago. So editing, editing is the next job. Oh yeah. Yeah. You've got, you've got your work cut out for you. Yeah. Do you, and this is my last question for you, is diversification-wise from income streams, you mentioned doing some construction. Do you currently do any kind of diversify your income? You Actually, you talked about teaching. Teaching. So I teach at Humber College, which is here in Toronto. I teach in the audio production department. That's the diversity of my income. I don't do that for that purpose. I've always been you know, we go back to my parents, which we talked about at the beginning. Like, I don't know. I've, I've always enjoyed teaching. I enjoy, like, even the YouTube stuff. It's like, I'm not really out to become a YouTube star. I enjoy sharing information. I enjoy pedagogy in general. I find it nice to be able to connect with... The nice thing about Humber is that it's a performance program. So everyone I'm teaching are like good players. It's fun teaching engineering to good players. Because mm. you're like, okay, let's get a trio together. And they're killing. You're like, now we can talk about sound. When someone can make a good sound, we can talk about capturing it. We can talk about manipulating it rather than having to imagine. So I enjoy that. That's the diversification at this point. I don't consider performance these days. A, it's sort of once in a blue moon for me. So it's not really a, an income-based thing. So I'm, you know, largely here in the studio. And the diversification within that, for the last four years, Atmos has been the primary thing for me. But I still am doing stereo masters, sometimes with labels where I'll do the stereo master and then the Atmos mix master. Mm. I also have been mastering Atmos for people, especially within Canada. There's a bunch of colleagues who have set up environments where they're working in headphones or they're working in smaller spaces. And 
They want to work together to make sure their stuff comes out sounding good in a speaker system. So I feel like there's a bit of a diversification there in terms of still being very, very happy to just like put on two speakers and work on stereo music. Like I do think that because of the time that we're in and the work that I've been very grateful to have in my world, a lot of people just see me as just doing immersive only, which I'm cool with. I mean, that's what I, that's what I'm passionate about. That's where I feel like my artistry comes to life in it. And that's why I did it in the first place. Cause it just asks so much of us, right? Like when we're creating an Atmos mix or a 360 mix, like we have to be producers. We have to be mix engineers. We have to be editors half the time. We have to be mass. It sort of asks a lot of skills to come together to be successful in my experience. But the diversification part is like, if a project comes in where it's got to go from stereo mix to Atmos master and everything in there, I'm all for it as long as the time allows. And so, yeah, I haven't really closed any doors of anything. I just tried to keep them open, but also staying responsible to deadlines and things like that. Cause I do find as the as the work gets up and some of the stakes get a little bit higher, people need things on time. That's just how it is. So we gotta be responsible to that while trying to maybe sleep once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, fantastic to have you on. For the audience, I'll put a link to Justin's website in the show notes. That's synthesissound.com. Um, yep. And any other kind of interesting tidbits of URLs I'll put in there for you. But Justin, really great to chat with you. I've been looking forward to this conversation. I look forward to meeting you in person and, and, and maybe hanging out and talking shop a little more in depth in the future. So we'll see what the future holds. I look forward to that. And thank you again. I, I love the podcast. I love the community that you've built and it's a pleasure to be here well thanks thanks for being here with me today appreciate it thanks our friends over at cali audio have just introduced the brand new lp unf system which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere and the system is specifically designed for your desk so no matter how else you're using your desk reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Justin Gray here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. If you do like the show, you like what's happening here, head on over to your podcast aggregator. Simply leave a five-star review. That's all it takes. If you want to take some time and write something nice there, that, that also helps. And we certainly appreciate that. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magical voice of Chuck Smith at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn and feel free to send me an email, matt at workingclassaudio.com. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss, 
you know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. (laughs) 